right, here we are again. Welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy. I'm your host, Dr. Chris. We're going to talk about some interesting things this week. I want to talk a bit about frustration. And uh, for those listening, of course, this is the show where we talk about, well, frankly, anything that interests me. Uh, and this week it's frustration. Uh, last week, uh, I had a really good week, actually. Uh, but a couple of things did come up where there was some frustration involved. And, you know, it's something that we don't really talk about in medicine a whole heck of a lot because... You know, you don't want to seem weak. And in medicine, sometimes uh, uh, the weak get preyed upon, I guess, is maybe a nice way to say that. And so we have to be very careful about things that uh, might make us seem weak. And frustration is a very real part of our job, unfortunately. Uh, It's probably part of every every job. Unfortunately, this is really the only major job I've had. Um, So it's a little bit difficult to talk about, but... I want to go through it, and um, I wanted to, to, to share a story, and uh, it's, it's one of these things where at the time it seemed like the worst thing ever, but at the same time, uh, we all count our blessings, and life could be much worse, and I recognize that, but basically we had um, a situation where, you know, during clinic, I got called to take care of a gallbladder. No problem. That's what we do. And I went to go take care of the gallbladder. And while that was sort of getting worked up, I got a call from another hospital about another gallbladder. And as it was my day, the next day was busy enough that, you know, there was really not a great way for me to get that accomplished. And so for me, it seemed like the easiest thing to do is I I put the first gallbladder on at about 4.30. And, uh, you know, actually, you know, it was three. I take that back. It was three o'clock. So I put the first gallbladder on at three at the one hospital and th- that would give me plenty of time. And I put the second gallbladder on at 530 at the second hospital. Normally that would work out just fine. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the, uh, the first gallbladder was a bit more challenging. Uh, had to do a bunch of lysis of adhesions and taking down of scar tissue and whatnot that uh, just took longer. And actually it was extensive uh, <laughs> scar tissue and actually took me an hour and a half. Uh, and I'm, I'm not known for being slow. So uh, that was pretty intense adhesions. Then we took out his literally necrotic gallbladder such that, you know, it got to be, uh, I think the whole thing took me about two hours or so, which is very unusual for me. That does not usually take me that long to do that. And so by the time we'd gotten started, uh, but, you know, cause things never start at three. Uh, so we got, finally got rolling about three, th- 30, 345, somewhere on there, finished up about 545. And then I let the second hospital know that, of course, I'd be running a little late. And they uh, they informed me that they, uh, they the crew had been waiting uh, since the 530 mark. And since uh, it was going to take me 20, 30 minutes to get over there, she couldn't hold the crew anymore. And I would have to follow uh, a surgeon who was just getting started with another case, but that it would just delay me by... Oh, a little bit. And I said, okay. And I show up over there, take care of the patient, get her kind of set, ready to go for her gallbladder surgery, answered her questions. And uh, as is per usual, then they're only down to the one team. There's no one else that can do the case. And unless I, you know, start declaring major emergencies and calling other teams in, long story short, as I got started on this case that was supposed to start at 530, and then maybe I was a little bit delayed and we would have started about 6.15, uh, but instead we started at 9.45. So for those oh, three hours or so, 
night I had to listen to my gallbladder patient throw up. Uh, even though we gave her all kinds of medication, she was just having a lot of symptoms from her gallbladder. And she just kind of was throwing up a bunch. And it was very frustrating because we could take care of that as soon as we get her to surgery. But we didn't have anywhere we could go. And so, like I said, and then, you know, I really didn't get home until almost 11 o'clock at night. And frustrating, uh, I think, is the minimum of words. And, you know, for having one thing taking me maybe 30 or 40 minutes longer than expected, plus the um, just a little bit of a hiccup with the schedule of the other hospital. Yeah, I sat there and waited for three hours. So several team members from the other hospital went home at relatively normal times. And had they stayed 30 or 40 minutes, we would have taken care of everything and everyone could have been home at seven. Instead, I had to wait. And I had to wait until, you know, I didn't really finish up until about 10.30, 10.45. I got home about, I guess I said about 11.30 by the time I actually got home. So, yeah, frustrating. How do you deal with that? Well, in this scenario, you gotta, you just kind of recognize that it's not a whole lot you can do. You gotta get the patient taken care of. Ideally, you can kind of fall within limits and normally it works out that way, but every now and then, now the stars line against you a little bit and you just have to wait and you gotta find something to do, whether it's catching up on CMEs or correspondence and emails and whatnot. I mean, there are things that need to be done, but yeah, that's, that's all you can do really. And recognizing that instead of getting pissed is probably the better way to go. I could have started making phone calls. I could have started demanding things. I could have just raised all hell and, and yelled at people. But instead, I calmly just proceeded with the case and told the patient what was going on and why we were running late. And then we kind of talked about uh, the reasons why, and I was just honest with the patient. And then we just went ahead and did the case. And once the case was done, the patient was taken care of. She went home the next morning. She did great. I went home, I got some sleep. The next day was fine. So everything was fine. Nothing really bad happened. I just missed a couple hours with the family. It's happened before. It'll, it'll happen again. And realizing that makes it much better so that the next time, you know, it'll be hopefully you just kind of gently remind them, hey, I waited three hours. Is there any way we could not wait this time? And you say it nicely and try not to raise your top. And um, I think that that can be helpful. So as I was having a day like that, um, which, you know, I dealt with with my own, own way, uh, I sort of thought about, you know, I wonder what are the biggest frustrations that we deal with as a physician. So I took a little informal poll of my of my friends, if you will, and and uh, got some interesting responses. And I, I was kind of accept, expecting just a couple answers and a couple answers across the board that would kind of you know, stay around and, and be uh, the same answer. And uh, I got anything besides that uh, as, as we go through them. You know, I got uh, facility inefficiency. I got red tape, uh, nurses and ancillary staff having too much power. Insurance companies, I did, I did get a couple insurance companies. Um, lack of trust of the general public, lawsuits. Um, sort of poor dealing with the current COVID crisis. Um, and then I had one, the supplies being an issue um, and lack of insurance being a major problem, lack of physician impact and representation and policy making. 
And so, <laughs> yeah, those are the kind of answers I get. I'm going to go through some of these and kind of, kind of go over what is the, some of the disconnect, some of the problems that exist. Um, and some answers maybe, but more importantly, kind of how to deal with the, the frustration part of it, because ultimately this, <laughs> I guess ultimately this is really the biggest frustration part of it is there's not a whole lot we can do about a lot of the stuff on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the biggest frustrating part. And I, I think not to be, give spoilers here, but the biggest answer is, <laughs> and it's, it's the serenity prayer, you know, learn or, you know, have the guidance to understand the things that I can change. Um, and then the, uh, the wisdom to know that uh, what that what I can't or strength. Oh, how does it go? The serenity prayer. I'm literally going to be looking. I'm looking this up right now, but it is the serenity prayer. Oh, it was there. Um, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There you go. It's the beginning of the serenity prayer. There's more to it, but that's the that's the the gist of it. Um, and I, I think not being afraid to kind of write these things down, deal with them in the proper channels, is far healthier and better for you as a physician than blowing your top, making a scene, and raising all holy hell. Um, that generally gets you in the category of the troubled physician. Now you're talking about behavior management and being sanctioned by your MEC. And uh, that doesn't help anyone. So facility inefficiency. Let's talk about that one first. Um, I was an anesthesiologist friend of mine, and I think kind of echoed with what the story that I told before, which is, you know, a lot of times what is important to us as physicians is not necessarily as important to the hospital and making sure I get through my day in an efficient way and getting home to my family in an efficient way and taking care of patients in a you know caring and efficient way is theoretically an important bit to the hospital, but ultimately they're driven by their own efficiency issues. They're driven by their own need to manage costs and as much as those things are good when they line up, when they don't line up, sometimes that does affect us. And most of the time, if you can take two or three steps back, you understand that those things are not done to hurt you as a physician. They're not done to you as a physician. They're just kind of done. And the policy makes sense when you're sitting there at noon over lunch and you make a policy and then now someone's affected that, you know, we didn't necessarily intend that to happen and we didn't foresee that that would happen, but sure enough, now it's happened. And the only thing we can do is come back and address it again later. But ultimately understanding that most of the time when there's a facility inefficiency, it's not being done to you. It's a consequence of something that might have a bigger picture. Sometimes that's antibiotic selection. Sometimes that's uh, only one or two crews being able to work after a certain amount of time. And that's all just labor management. It's all about managing the hourly employees and, and, and the, um, you know, wages and whatnot, payroll that, uh, that the hospital has to take care of. And obviously they want to take care of the most number of cases they can with the least number of man hours they can. And it's more efficient for them to, on a certain level, to have cases run later with one team rather than running those teams 
parallel as much as possible. So that's kind of the answer to my, my frustration and uh, some of the inefficiencies that do happen. Um, <clears throat> red tape. You know, red tape is something that we deal with a lot more. And it's funny, I remember being younger and just kind of thinking, you know, the, these guys that are older, these surgeons, these doctors that are older are gonna have and continue to have more and more problems because they were in medicine at a time when there really wasn't much red tape. I remember a pediatrician uh, attending when I was a medical student used to, he, he sort of joked about that he used to write his notes back in the in the seventies, for example, he would write patient sick, antibiotics given, and that, that's it, that's the whole note. <laughs> and then he'd bill the insurance company for whatever was appropriate and they'd pay it. Uh, clearly that's not what's done now and that's probably not good medicine. I think we can all recognize that, but there are times when we put things into notes that we know we're putting there just for the making sure that everyone knows what we saw and dealt with and some of it is extra and some of it's not necessarily needed every single time but we put it there because if we don't and something were to come back and bite us then we 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 didn't do it and if you don't write it down then it wasn't done and and that's fine <clears throat> but the that's one up, you know, it's not exactly the same as red tape, but that's kind of a, a, a corollary to some of the red tape that we deal with. For example, you know, nowadays it seems like if you want to use the antibiotic, you can't use the antibiotic unless it's on the approved list for the approved indication. And in a lot of the computer ordering systems, you can't get through ordering the antibiotic without giving the exact reason that you're giving it. Um, and then they, they, they do let you choose, you know, empiric therapy and whatnot, but you know, now you've got to sort of justify it. And then if you don't get rid of it after the white counts normal for a couple of days, then they're calling and asking, well, why are you still continuing it? And things like that. So it's extra stuff that you have to deal with as well as like, um, Oh, just every, you know, every year we have to have a TB test and every year we have to have a flu shot. And depending on what kind of organization you work for or work with, you have to fill out learning modules about whether it's OSHA safety in your office or HIPAA compliance in your office. Um, any of these things uh, just add to the red tape. I, I once worked for a larger health group. <laughs> <laughs> I was leaving them and, uh, you know, the, the last couple of paychecks they were threatening to withhold if I didn't complete this learning module that needed to be completed based on their, you know, you know, all physicians employed in this year have to complete this learning module. And I just was like, you know, I'm leaving. What difference does it make? I don't, I'm not, I don't really want to do it. And they finally kind of threatened my paycheck. So I, I logged in and I did the learning module. And the learning module was to make sure that I was going to be HIPAA compliant next year. So it wasn't even that big of a deal. It was like an attestation that I was going to do certain things in the next year when I wasn't going to be there. <laughs> And so, I mean, if you can't think of it, if there's no, no better example for red tape, it's like literally you're a physician, you're employed, you then have to do this thing because that's what our policy is, no matter that the thing that you're attesting to, you're not even going to be a part of. And that's just someone making a decision and they don't even think how the decision goes through. I once had to get two TB tests within a week because the organization that I worked for at the time, they wanted, I, I needed a TB test and it was supposed to be, I was supposed to get a new one around September 1st. And I was actually good that year. And I got it about a week early. I got it like August 23rd. <laughs> I was the organization I worked for was being bought out by another organization. And <laughs> 
they had decided because it was going to change at the uh, new year and they had decided that they were not going to accept any TB tests that were older than September 1st. And so I tried to call someone. I'm like, hey, listen, uh, I realize you said September 1st, but I, I literally got one August 23rd. Um, is there anything that we can kind of do? Because I mean, you know, it's seven days. I mean, come on. And uh, that person was just an HR person. Like, well, no, no, our policy is September 1st, so you just need to get another one. No big deal. No, not any time out of her day or anything like that. Just, you know, there's a policy and that hasn't been checked appropriately. And so until you check it appropriately, I can't move on to step two. And so then I tried to, uh, and you know, I'm a general surgeon, so it's not like I know everything about TB tests. And I looked up everything you could possibly look up about the dangers of getting TB tests back to back. Quick version is there aren't any, but... <laughs> So, yeah, uh, the next week, uh, that first week of September, I got another TB test. For the only time in my life, I've ever gotten a TB, two TB tests within a month without any symptoms. Uh, so, yeah, red tape like that and being told to do something not for good reason, large frustration. Um, <laughs> uh so yeah, that, that was interesting. Uh, I will admit to not taking the the more Zen approach I had mentioned earlier. Um, these things being done to me, they actually felt pretty personal. If I'm if I'm telling the truth, um, that is a, a bit of a lesson. Uh, and I guess the bigger picture here is not that uh, to just sit down and not to just take everything. But if there is real problems, if there's real institutional problems with with excess red tape that's being done and excess things uh, in your in your practice that are that are burdensome, uh, it might be time to change. And uh, that's kind of where I got to with that particular practice. I just couldn't I couldn't deal with uh, all the uh, all that stuff. And so I, I ended up making a change uh, shortly thereafter um, and I'm much, much happier for it. So, yeah, don't necessarily accept everything laid down. I'm, all I'm saying is uh, maybe don't blow up and find another way to work within the system if you can. And if you can't, maybe it's time to leave the system. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the ones that interests me here, I think the general's public lack in lack of trust in medicine and science would be up there. Um, I gotta admit, this is not something that bothers me on a daily basis. Uh, I've had it pop up a couple times. Um, <laughs> years ago, I took care of a gentleman who was really against having his gallbladder removed. And sure enough, uh, he had come at me with a bunch of articles about injecting ether into the gallbladder to dissolve the gallstones so he could avoid surgery. Uh, we, we did not do that, uh, just uh, for everyone out there. But uh, yeah, occasionally you get patients that, uh, you know, they've read on their own and they've uh, pulled up whatever, either uh, study that doesn't pertain to them or it doesn't um, actually, uh, either the study doesn't pertain to them or it's just completely out there in terms of what is acceptable uh, stuff. And so... You know, it, it is somewhat frustrating. The sort of alternative medicine, I think, is maybe the way to say that. Alternative medicine, the the people that are on the internal medicine, medical, yeah, alternative medical sites, whether it be the essential oils people or um, homeopathy or any of them that attempt to discredit uh, medicine. I, I can see that being frustrating. For whatever reason, it doesn't really come up in general surgery in my practice very often, uh, simply because most of my patients and most, I think, general surgery patients in general are referred by their PCP. And so the patient has already come to the PCP with a concern 
PCP's done some of their work up and then given the patient to me to evaluate further or go ahead and go ahead with surgery. So patients are already a little bit pre-selected as being at least okay with surgery. It does pop up every now and then with patients in the ER or patients that have been at least said, hey, you may want to try this, uh, at least go talk to the surgeon. So it, it does come up, but not to the point of frustration. But uh, the person that gave me that answer actually was uh, a GI doctor. And my suspicion is that between constipation and IBS and other more functional disorders of the intestine, uh, I bet they do see a lot of, of that. And I can see that being extremely frustrating. I don't know that I have a huge answer here. I, I think um, acknowledging uh, the patient's uh, fears about Western medicine and, and more traditional medicine versus the lack of evidence for, you know, some of these other things. Uh, and in some ways, it, depending on the industry, uh, when you look at essential oils and, and some other things, I mean, there have literally been some illegal activity related to some of these companies and pointing some of that out that obviously are not seen on social media, I, I think is important. And I think maybe that could be helpful, uh, at least to some patients. Obviously, people are going to drink their own Kool-Aid and you can't necessarily do that. And all you can do is, is document that you've told them the correct thing. And if they choose not to accept your advice, then, you know, somehow you got to figure out how to be at peace with that. But I could see it being frustrating. Uh, lawsuits and liability. Oof. Lawsuits. Lawsuits are tough. Um... Unfortunately, I have been involved in some and, you know, like any other uh, physician, I mean, those things settle and you're kind of bound by it. You really can't talk about them a whole lot. But, you know, ultimately, uh, when you're involved in a lawsuit, you end up doing a deposition and in a deposition, uh, <laughs> they do everything they can to literally make you feel like you're the worst person alive and that you barely have a you know that you don't have any business practicing medicine and how could you possibly put patients in danger uh and whatnot and usually it's really just a matter of you know an unfortunate event happened and you know they're just they're just obviously trying to advocate for their for their uh, for their patients and it's tough it's tough i mean it is a beating uh lots of hand rigging there's you know depending on your state there can be different laws in effect that can put your practice at risk uh if you haven't organized uh properly or depending on how things are organized i mean sometimes you know you, you worry that your family your income your house and these things can all be in jeopardy theoretically and it's just one of those things where and I've said this before, you need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and provide the best, pair, uh, best care for patients that you can. In general, that's going to work pretty well. Um, bad things are going to happen to good people. And accept the... Accept that some people are out there to look for gain or some people are just trying to make up for lost wages or whatever. And as much as possible recognize that it's not personal and that particularly the lawyers that you end up having to deal with it's not personable personal ah, personal and somehow get through it and honestly if it's bad counseling don't be afraid of counseling don't be afraid to come in there and start talking about some of these things that scare you because again looking in the mirror sometimes it's it's not easy sometimes you don't always like what you see back there and um talking to a counselor and and recognizing talking to your peers talking about the talking to the peers that you trust and you know are you being safe and would they see you and 
what kind of you know reputation do you have and and it's hard to do because again you don't want to show weakness but at the same time you got to be able to get through it because the more you think about it the more it weighs on you the the more chance you have of uh not providing the best care for the patients that you're currently dealing with so yeah look in the mirror get counseling go from there insurance companies three people answered that insurance companies are frustrating um there's several books have been written about that i think uh there's a john grisham book uh the rainmaker i think it was where the specifically they were talking about a, a lawsuit and they were trying to withhold care uh, on a cancer patient because this is fiction of course but basically the the cancer care was was expensive and they just kind of put up some insurance type roadblocks and thinking the family wouldn't do that uh and so then the patient didn't get the care and then unfortunately the patient died and then the so whole source of the book is they then they sued and you know yada yada but you, you see it you see insurance companies putting up these random walls occasionally they don't cover i mean i see it in my practice we don't they don't cover PPIs very well. It's hard to get patients on PPIs. I've taken care of a number of patients for anti-reflux type surgery where, you know, it's not that they're really that unsatisfied with their medication. They just couldn't get it anymore. And, you know, because of their finances or whatnot, it was, you know, the over-the-counters too expensive or whatever. But yeah, insurance companies, they just, they don't really cover the PPIs anymore. And good luck trying to get them to cover Dexalent, which is, you know, a timed release, uh, medication that is good for people that have been refractory to other medications it's darn near impossible and they just don't care they just don't care you could call them and say listen this is why they need that we have a big problem in surgery with wound vacs you know we we have there's certain phrases that we have to say and chronic this and whatever and various companies and if or with various insurance companies and if you don't say the right thing it's just not covered um and then you're having to take time out of your day to, you know, call some medical director of some insurance company who one time I did get a general surgeon. That was relatively easier. But usually it's someone who has no idea what your specialty is. And you're trying to explain the reason that you're trying to get the test. And it just oof, very, very frustrating taking the extra time when you're already busy and you're already trying to make up for whatever cuts have recently happened or just trying to get back on your feet after the COVID shutdown for many practices. And now you're trying to, you know, get all these patients in, but at the same time, you have to take time out of your day to literally call someone and just get something that you know is the way to go and you know is not way out there and it's standard of care in your opinion. And you're having to justify for some to someone at first that doesn't even have a medical degree and then eventually someone that may or may not be even in your specialty understand what you're talking about. Uh, very, very frustrating. Um, to the best of your ability, I mean, try and get your ancillary staff to take care of as much of it as you can. Uh, whenever you do finally get in touch with these guys, just try and write down whatever terminology or whatever you need to say so that next time you can sort of short, you know, shortcut some of this stuff. But yeah, very, very frustrating. Um, we see it also, <laughs> I've been having this problem lately, is, you know, the hospitals have this same problem. And if they're trying to maximize their billing based on your operative report, and I get this all the time, like, you know, you need to clarify that this was an excisional you know, debridement, for example. 
And I, I get this one all the time, and I'm like, and I read through my op report, and my op report will say something to the effect of, you know, the tissue was then uh, lifted up, a scalpel was used to remove this portion of the tissue a full centimeter down to the level of the fascia, to the sub to the muscle, whatever. I included the muscle, blah, 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 and the tissue was removed uh, sharply with, uh, with the scalpel. And then they say, well, you, you didn't say excisional. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I removed the tissue. I did it sharply. I did it with a scalpel. How could it possibly be anything but excisional? And so, you know, you, you got to resist the temptation. You got to understand that they're literally in the same boat you are. You're literally just trying to get paid, get paid by these insurance companies that want to put up every roadblock they possibly can. So you got to learn how to play the game. And as much as your office is trying to do the same thing as the hospital is trying to do the same thing. So resist the temptation I can't say that I've always done this, but resist the temptation to dictate something to the effect of, in an excisional manner, we excise the excised specimen of the of the right leg that uh, was excised down to in an excisional manner with the scalpel that I had previously used for an excision. Don't do that. That's just being an asshole. Um, but but it's funny. I'll grant you that. But at the same time, uh, try and understand that they're just in the exact same boat you are. Um, uh, one of my PCP friends uh, wrote that they have just a huge problem with supply vendors. I don't have any kind of answer for this, honestly, uh, but I had no idea it's a problem. Uh, currently, uh, he's saying that he's really like, he's like five to seven days of supplies on hand at any given time right now. And he just can't get supplies in right now. Uh, I don't think that's a chronic thing. I think it's related to more of the COVID thing, but literally he's like, it's from the state, it's from Amazon vendors. Um, I, all I can say to that is I'm going to just hold on. Hopefully this is all going to get better. We're going to return to normal relatively soon. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about that, uh, but I feel for you, man. Insurance. I'm sorry. Lack of insurance. Oof. This is one I've gotten better at as I've gotten older. Um, but and this is something the general public may not realize, but to the extent that you cover an ER or if you're on call for an emergency room, uh, there's a, a law called EMTALA. And I'm not an EMTALA expert and I'm not a lawyer, so please don't take what I say to be, you know, legal advice or, 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 or completely valid. But my experience and my understanding is that, you know, patients are... To be treated and triaged uh, appropriately uh, in emergency situations, and and I'm all for this in theory, right? I, I have no issue with that. Back before these laws were created, you would have patients that would show up to emergency rooms, and the old-fashioned wallet biopsy was done. If they didn't have insurance, then you know the, there was no legal ramifications for pay for doctors not covering it or other hospitals not accepting transfer and, and pa patients got hurt and obviously that's not okay um but you know like i said earlier when you have policies that get made they sometimes have un unintended consequences and so we now sort of have a situation where the it, it's a little bit too unequitable for physicians i think and so what you have is you know, if you get called for someone that has appendicitis, that's an emergency condition and being on call for that particular hospital, I am 100% obligated to take care of them and legally bound and responsible to do so. Um, and in general, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, that's fine. Um, but if the patient happens to be uninsured, 
then you know and hopefully I mean, you know they will they will pay you for your services but uh there's not really any ramifications if they don't other than whatever your billing practices are so you know for having taken care of a patient that is unable to pay the only thing that uh, a surgeon or any physician gets out of that is the increased liability for having done so so if a, a bad outcome were to happen and they were to sue yeah sure you're liable um, but you know, of course, then you, you didn't even get paid for the case. And maybe that sounds like whining and I, I don't mean it to, um, but it, it's difficult. If you take call at a, at a hospital that has a particularly high, uh, indigent population, I mean, that, that gets pretty burdensome. I mean, there's, there's years where, you know, I provided, you know, six figures or more in, in, in free care. And there's part of me as a, as a physician, well, as a physician, it's, it's easy. It's really easy to take care of a patient, right? I, it would be very, very difficult for me to, to ever sort of literally look at a patient in the eye and refuse them care based on their ability to pay. I couldn't do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I make it a point in my office. I don't look at anything like that. I just, I treat the patient, I offer care, I offer whatever. And then at some point they just say, yeah, I understand, but I, you know, I don't have insurance and how are we gonna cover that? And I'm like, well, we'll work it out and we'll figure it out. And we have payment plans and we have, you know, these these sort of, not really layaway, but it's like a, 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 a there's a credit card that they can apply for that's specifically healthcare related and blah, blah, blah. Then we can sometimes do things in the office to avoid costs of anesthesia and, 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 and a facility as well as uh, looking at doing them in surgery centers where, you know, the someone's costs are a little bit less. So I mean, we definitely work with the patients, but in the ER, you don't have those options. They're there. They need care right now. And you're, you're pretty much obligated to do so. I mean, you're, you're kind of required by law. Um, if it's not your specialty, you can then, ref, you know, you can transfer them to another facility. That's completely legal. But again, looking in the mirror, if it's something that you can do, you have to provide them care and you can be uh, liable for that. And you can suffer pretty significant fines if you try and skirt those laws significantly. Um, and, I, and I've seen it happen. I've, I've seen hospitals that all of a sudden, you know, didn't have a surgeon available to take care of appendicitis on an uninsured patient. And you just kind of roll your eyes and you're like, seriously, okay. And so, you know, and in, in the end, just take care of the patient and, you know, in general, um, you're going to be okay. But the frustrating part of a case that then goes, maybe it's perforated and maybe they develop an abscess and then they have to have additional surgery and, and things like that. And, you know, you always worry, or, you know, are they going to kind of do something legally with you? And, um, it's a frustration. It's a big frustration. And then having to do, you know, you get two, three in a row and you're taking on all this increased liability and, you know, the office then has to bill it. You have to see them in the office. There's supplies that they need in the office that you provide. And, um, yeah, it gets, it gets frustrating. And fortunately, as I've gotten older, for whatever reason, I, it doesn't bother me like it used to. Um, I don't know why. I don't have a good reason why. Um, I was in a practice where I was paid regardless of whether the patient had insurance. And um, I think that was the least I ever cared about it, obviously, um, because I actually did get benefit for seeing the patient, um, financial benefit that is. And um, so that was that was kind of good, but everything else about that was bad. So <laughs> I left that behind. Uh, but you know, as I get older and I get uh, real close to 50, uh, I find it doesn't bother me quite as much and I, I don't know why uh, 
I wish I could sort of uh, sum that up so that uh, I, I could help my fellow physicians, but I don't have a reason, I guess. Um, as, I, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, maybe, maybe I see my kids and some of these younger people that don't have insurance because, I mean, that's a common thing. The, the young don't have insurance because, you know, they're invincible and, you know, they don't want to spend the money on it or they can't yet or whatever. And so maybe I just see my kids and my stepkids in there that... I have more compassion for, I don't know. I really don't know, but ultimately, um, yeah, it's something you got to get figured out because uh, it can be burdensome, um, both truly financially as well as just, just the beating in terms of like, you know, I've worked this entire weekend and I've done this case and that case and that case and realistically, you know, 80% of them were uninsured. And so for all this work and all the time I spent away from my family this weekend and all the time, that I could have been doing something else. Um, you know, all I've done is increase the liability of my practice. And uh, that's a rough thought sometimes. It's a rough thought sometimes. Um, try and think about the good that you do for, for patients and how those patients are meeting you on your work, their worst day and, and you are providing them care. And I think if you do it compassionately and I, I hope that they provide the, the the thing that we all went to medical school with of you know we want to help people and if if you're helping them maybe they you know maybe they'll get you back later or at least we'll be appreciative and say thank you every now and then and uh, i wish that was done more from a patient perspective it doesn't happen that often and uh it would be nice if it did um yeah so that's a lot <laughs> um as i'm looking through this here i think there's one more i want to talk about Lack of physician impact and representation in policy making. This is something that we're seeing with larger hospital systems. And so what'll happen is you're working at some satellite hospital out in the in the suburbs or whatever, and they've identified a problem with the large hospital system at some other hospitals, the made mothership downtown or some other hospital somewhere else in your city, and they've identified that problem Y exists. And the answer to that is by implementing policy Y.A. And, and the problem is that policy then gets implemented by some large board that, that doesn't get out there. Or if it does, it gets buried in the 8 jillion emails you get about policy changes and procedures. And so there you are. And all of a sudden you wake up and at three o'clock in the morning because when it used to be the policy that ER docs could write orders for you so that you didn't have to get woken at three o'clock in the morning, they can still write those orders, but now they expire. And because physicians weren't at some other hospital, physicians weren't coming in and writing their orders appropriately within 24 hours. And some, I guess some things got missed. And so sure enough, now, we're getting woken up because the, oh, the orders expired. Well, that's fine. If they'd call me the first time, I could have put in my own orders, but no one lets you know the policy changed. And so now all of a sudden you're getting up at three o'clock in the morning because their dilata had expired or their IV fluids expired or they're not getting antibiotics any longer or whatever. And so these policies, just they sometimes just happen at this big institutional level and they make sense for the big institution or the mothership downtown or for the hospital out in the other side of the suburbs. And it makes sense there, but your hospital runs differently or has a different computer system, or we've already addressed this somewhere else. And now you have a duplicated policy or a policy that contradicts itself. And, and no one really looked into it. And that used to be that 
individual hospitals kind of govern themselves, and they still do to a certain extent, but uh, medical executive committees at the smaller or more community hospitals are not what they used to be. And we're sort of governed by these larger systems and these policies get made. And so then these things get, um, in a nice way of saying it, they get jammed down your throat and uh, you kind of just have to say, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so it's frustrating. It, that part is very frustrating. And so not that, uh, not that I have a giant solution for that. Again, you just kind of got to work within the system as best you can make things, you got to recognize when things don't make sense for what you're doing. Cause you do things differently because of X, Y, or Z and whatever, just, you know, make your, make your CEO, make your MEC, make whatever policy person, make them aware how this new policy doesn't, um, really apply to your hospital or situation, but you know, good luck with that. It doesn't, sometimes you just kind of have to shake your head and move on. We had orders change at one of our hospitals. I don't even know why, but I all of a sudden got, as I'm writing, writing post-op orders on a pretty simple thing. And sure enough, I, I try to click my little standardized order set thing that I use and uh, it had expired. Why? No idea. No idea. But I had to just right there instead of Instead of clicking what normally would have been a click, check through things for in you know 20 or 30 seconds and uncheck this and check that like I've been doing for a while. Nope, I had to open up whatever new version of it they had and then redo it and you know that that took a little bit and you just kind of shake your head and just kind of go well someone needed that done for some reason and it didn't quite fit with policy so there you go. So frustration. We all experience it. We all feel it. We all have to deal with it. I, I don't have answers for all these things and, and there aren't any. And I think ultimately that's what frustration is when you're experiencing a problem and you literally can't do anything about it. So answers. I don't have answers for individual cases, but answers for frustration in general. Number one, recognize when it's something that you really can't do anything about recognize what the reason for that is and try and step outside yourself and recognize what problem whatever's frustrating you is trying to solve and see if you can't see the other side and see if you can't sort of at least rationalize while you're being inconvenienced at least make sense on some level and part two if you can't then you need to try and make a change as ever you can keep your cool Make a change with either the, or try and make a change with either the, either the hospital or make a change in yourself. Meaning that if it's the institution that's the one that's being burdensome and unreasonable, maybe that institution isn't someplace you need to be, whether it's with your employer or a hospital that you work at. Um, try and work within the system as you can, but recognize when it's futile and not healthy for you. Um, I think uh, number three is recognize that there are much bigger things at play that have our job very, very frustrating. We care for human lives. And while no one is perfect and errors and mistakes happen, understand that the patients expect perfection. And whether it's counseling or being able to look yourself in the mirror, figure out that while you know you can't meet that goal, you got to figure out a way to come to terms with that and how to move forward through difficult times, whether it's lawsuits or board reports or whatever from an unhappy patient. 
get through that stuff so you can provide good care to other folks. Um, yeah, I think that's probably all I have this week. Uh, I did just want to talk about it because, well, I was frustrated last week and I thought it'd be good to talk about it. And it, you know what? It was. Um, if nothing else, this podcast has kind of helped me, certainly with um, learning uh, when I talk to other physicians. And I've enjoyed that immensely, uh, especially the ones that as I'm kind of getting into this that I don't know as well. Uh, and then talking through some of this, it's like sort of solo therapy and I know as I'm looking at my computer screen and watching my levels and whatnot, I can see, somehow I can kind of see y'all listening a little bit. And uh, this is sort of like a, I don't know if it's confessional or a, just a little solo therapy, but it's helpful. And um, I appreciate your indulgence. And uh, I look forward to next week. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, this is... This has been Dr. Chris, the surgery guy, the show where we talk about, well, frankly, anything that interests me. Uh, we should be back next week with either another topic or another guest. I'm not sure yet, um, but I look forward to that and uh, we'll go on from there. Uh, I do want to shout out, as usual, uh, Andrew with our coaching Nirvana for the intro and outro, as well as some of the background music you've heard. Thank you so much for your talent. 